Good evening. Thank you for being here tonight. We appreciate so much your presence. If you're visiting, as always, we invite you to come back. We are grateful for the opportunity that we have tonight to come together to worship God in spirit and in truth. Thank you for the songs that we've been privileged to sing together, the prayer that's been offered, scripture reading, and Brother James, you did a great job. Appreciate you reading our scripture tonight. And uh, we're grateful for James and the great talent that he and his family have and all the good work that they're doing here at Olive Branch. And I know that we had Pew Packers tonight, and it is a great thing to see these young folks as they sing and learn and grow, and they are the future of the church here. And we've got a great foundation, don't we? Tonight we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2 as we make our way through key chapters of the Bible. And tonight we're going to be talking about the household of God. We said last week in our study that when you look at the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters, Paul accentuates our relationship to Christ. The last three, chapter, three chapters, the Apostle Paul emphasizes our responsibilities in Christ. And so tonight, for the next few minutes, we're going to talk about the household of God. And I want to begin our study tonight by suggesting to you that the greatest institution known to man is the church. When you read the book of Ephesians, there is great emphasis on the church that belongs to Christ. As Paul said in Ephesians 5.25, he loved the church and gave himself for it. And so we have the opportunity to be a part of this great body. And so if you are a member of the church, you are enjoying the great blessings that God in the long ago designed for you. And so it's a tremendous honor to be a part of the body of Christ. And so tonight, as we begin looking at chapter 2, there's some things that we need to consider in light of the fact that we belong to the household of God, that we are God's family in Christ. The first thing that the Apostle Paul does is to stress the doom of sinners. Now, I do not particularly like the term doom, but when we talk about those who are outside of Christ, their fate, their state is that of doom. In other words, they stand under condemnation. Now Paul is writing to people that have been liberated by Christ. But in verse 1 he said, And you has he made alive, who were, past tense, dead in trespasses and sins. What Paul is saying there is that those who are outside of Christ Jesus, they are lost in sin. You remember in Luke 15, Jesus presented a series of parables. He talked about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Each of those parables highlighted the danger of that which is lost. And yet Jesus said He came to seek and to save the lost. The Lord Jesus Christ is interested in people who are lost. Matter of fact, Ezekiel, that great prophet of God in the long ago, you remember he said, the soul that sins, it shall surely die. In 
Ezekiel chapter 33, Ezekiel said on behalf of God that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But rather, as Paul would say, God's desire is that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Or you think about the words of Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, when Peter said that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And yet those who are outside that spiritual state known as in Christ, they're lost. I think the idea of being lost in sin in many respects has been downplayed by the culture in which we live. There are a lot of folks in our world today when you talk about spiritual things and when we emphasize the danger of living in sin. Quite frankly, they just don't get it, do they? And yet Paul would say in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. That's a dangerous state to be in. Now you remember in verse 12 of the book of Ephesians, Paul there talks about the fact that the Gentile world, they had not been the recipients of God's blessings as lavished upon the nation of Israel. And so God talked about the danger of living outside a covenant relationship with Himself. Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, that those who are outside that covenant relationship, they are without hope and without God in this world. Now there are a lot of people in our world today, they're living without God and they're living without hope. It might not necessarily impact them as we now speak. But there will come a day when they stand before God and if they stand before Him in a lost condition, they will truly be without hope and without God. And so Paul here talks about the danger, the condemnation of those who are living in sin. But then he also talks about the conduct of sinners. Now listen to him if you would, and note if, note if you will how the Apostle Paul includes himself in this discourse. In verse 2 he said, "...in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience." Now note verse 3, "...among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others." Paul here is talking about the conduct of those who live in sin. And so what he is emphasizing to the saints in Ephesus is that at one point in time their lives have been controlled by the devil. The devil uses the world to ultimately subvert faith in the Lord. You remember John talked about the danger associated with the world and the lust of the flesh and, and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Paul here writing about the prince of the power of the air. The devil is interested in destroying spiritual lives, isn't he? Matter of fact, 
John said in 1 John chapter 3 that the devil sinned from the beginning. Jesus, however, came to destroy the works of the devil. And so the devil is doing everything that he can to destroy your soul. And Paul here is talking to Christians that had come out of the world. Now the Bible talks about the bondage of sin. Jesus said, for example, in John chapter 8, verse 34, that those who live in sin are literally the bondservants of sin. Paul, in writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, would talk about those who, have take, who are taken captive by the devil to do his will. Imagine, if you can, being imprisoned by Satan. And wasn't it Peter who said, Be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Paul, in writing to the church here at Ephesus, would say, Be strong in the Lord, in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you might be able to stand against the wiles or the schemes of the devil. Paul is talking to people that knew something about living in sin. And it might be the case that there are a lot of folks today who are living in sin. They really don't understand the gravity of the situation. They don't understand the dangerous peril of their eternal soul. They stand in jeopardy of losing their soul in a devil's hell forevermore. Now, there's a second thought here. First, we talk about, in verses 1 through 3, the doom of sinners. But secondly, the deliverance afforded us by the Savior. So note, if you would, beginning in verse 4. Now, what Paul's going to do is talk about a couple of characteristics of Almighty God. First, the love of the Lord. And then secondly, he's going to stress our liberation by the Lord. So note, if you would, beginning in verse 4. Paul said, But God who is rich in mercy because of the great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins. Number one, there is what I would call the profession of love. Now, there are people today that talk about the Bible, and they will say it is a love letter. Well, in many respects it is, because God is professing His love for the human family. And God genuinely, deeply loves each and every person. It might be difficult for us to understand that God loves everyone, but the fact of the matter is He does, and He has professed that love. For example, John in 1 John chapter 4 said, Here in His love, not that we love God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus said, For God so loved the world. That is a profession a declaration of the love of God, isn't it? And Paul said, but God commends His own love toward us. There's something to be said about the genuine love of Almighty God. God loves you, and God will always love you. We've talked before about the love that we have for our children. 
And I've said before, and I believe it to be the case, that if you really want to come to understand unconditional love, think about the love that you have for your children. Now, I understand the ideal based upon what Paul said in Ephesians 5.25, that the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. That's the divine ideal. And so that is a trait that we learn. But when your child is born into this world, there is automatic, instantaneous, unconditional love, is there not? There's nothing that will ever change that love that you have for your child. Well, God loves us unconditionally. That love will never change. And God has professed it over and over again in Scripture. So you have the profession of that love, but then the proof of His love. So listen to what Paul says in this context. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, now note, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So let me pause here for a minute. Paul here is saying that God has not only professed His love for you, but He has proven His love for you. How did He do that? When we were dead in trespasses and sins, when our lives were marred by sin and unrighteousness, God said, I still love you, and let me show you how much I love you. I'm going to send my son so that you can enjoy a relationship with me. That's divine love, isn't it? And so when we talk about the proof of God's love, all we have to do is step backward in time, 2,000 years, and when we look at the cross of Calvary, what do we see? A manifestation of the love of Almighty God. Until Jesus comes again, the cross will radiate with love. And what Jesus is saying to the human family is, look, I love you. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, than a man laid on his life for his friends. Peter said that Jesus also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust being put to death in the flesh, made alive by the Spirit. Jesus was the just one who died for us, the unjust. Well, why? That He might bring us to God. That was the purpose. So that we might enjoy reconciliation. And Paul's going to make that abundantly clear in this chapter. So first, to come to understand something about the love of the Lord. But then Paul also emphasizes not just God's love, but God's liberation. The liberating work of God through Jesus Christ. So pick up with me again in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul said, even when we were dead in sins, He's made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, He's raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. Verse 8, 
For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast or glory. Number one, when we talk about the liberation that we enjoy as a result of the Lord, to come to appreciate the goodness of God. You remember the psalmist many years ago in Psalm 34 and about verse 7. David said, O taste and see that the Lord is good. When Peter wrote his epistle in 1 Peter chapter 2, he said, If you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, the goodness of God, where would we be, spiritually speaking, if it weren't for the goodness of God? God is intrinsically good, isn't He? God is a holy being. And yet this intrinsically good, holy God is concerned about our plight here on planet Earth. So much so, so, much so that He has made provisions for us to enjoy pardon, liberation. So you have the grace of God coupled with the goodness of God. And Paul here is stressing not just the goodness of God, but His marvelous, matchless grace. Now, grace typically defined as the unmerited favor, the divine favor of Almighty God. God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. There is no way that we will ever put God in debt to us. There's no way that I will ever get to a point in time in my life when I can say, God, you owe me. God doesn't owe me anything. But because of God's grace and love and the manifestation of that grace, He has made it possible for me to enjoy, as Paul said, the exceeding riches of His grace and kindness. Well, where is that? It's in Christ. That's what he said in Ephesians chapter 2. Don't think, though, that God's grace is cheap. And don't come to the understanding or come to the conclusion that just because God has lavished His grace upon us that there's not something that we must do in order to appropriate that grace. I know that there are folks in the religious world today that will tell you it's grace and all grace, you don't have to do anything. Well, if that's the case, then why on Pentecost Day, when those people were pricked or cut to the heart, convicted of sin, as Luke records in Acts 2 verse 37, when they cried out to Peter and the other apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Wouldn't it have been a perfect opportunity for Peter to have said to that great multitude of people, where do you ever get an idea that you have to do something in order to enjoy pardon from sin? Well, Peter didn't say that, did he? God's grace manifested in the sending of Jesus for our sins. Now, we have a great illustration of grace in Genesis chapter 6. You remember the Bible says in Genesis chapter 6 and about verse 9 that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And yet God had said that every imagination of the thought of man's heart was only evil continually. The decree was God was going to destroy man whom He had created, both man and beast. And yet here is Noah, a man obviously of sterling character. 
Here was a man that walked with God. He found grace in the eyes of God. And God told Noah he was going to destroy the world. But he said, here's what I want you to do, Noah. I want you to build an ark using gopher wood, setting forth the dimensions of that ark. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 6, in about verse 22, Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him. So did he. All right, so here you have Noah receiving God's grace. And God said, the decree is, I'm going to destroy the world. Here then are the divine instructions. If you want to be saved, and you want your family to be saved, then here is what you must do. Did it take faith on Noah's part? Did it require obedience on his part? Listen to what the commentary is in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with godly fear, now listen, preparing an ark for the saving of his household, by which he became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So what do you have? God's grace, divine instruction, faith, and obedience, don't you? So if we want to enjoy the marvelous, matchless benefits and blessings of God's grace, are there things that we must do to appropriate that grace? Well, the answer is yes. God's grace is located in Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. So when we comply with the conditions set forth in Scripture, we contact the grace of God, the mercy of God, the blood of Christ, whereby all of our sins are washed away. The principle of Genesis chapter 6 is a good one. And I think it really makes the case. So, when you look at Ephesians chapter 2, and we talk about the liberation of God's grace, God's grace and God's goodness. Now, I want you to move from that with me, and note with me, if you would, for a moment or two, drop down and look at verse, pick up with me again in verse 11. I want to now talk about the designation of the saints. We talked about the doom of sinners, the deliverance by the Savior, and now the designation of the saints. Now, listen again as Paul writes, talking about the Gentile world, Therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now note, if you would, verse 13. In verse 13 and following, Paul is going to accentuate reconciliation. Reconciliation occurs in the Lord. So in verse 13 he said, But now, past tense, they had been dead in trespasses and sins, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been made near by what? By the blood of Christ. Now, you remember under the Old Covenant, for example. I mentioned this morning in our study Leviticus chapter 16, the great day of atonement. And the high priest would go into the most holy place on the day of atonement. Sacrifice would be made. 
He would sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat, signifying reconciliation between God and man. Now, all of that was in light of the coming of Christ and the provisions that would be set forth by the death of Jesus on Calvary. But who was it that stood between the children of Israel and God? Well, the priesthood, didn't they? The high priest. In Christ Jesus, the Bible tells us, the book of Hebrews makes this abundantly clear, that Jesus is our great high priest. And we are priests of God. And so now we have access to the very throne of God, do we not? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. As priest of God, we have the privilege, the opportunity to approach God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. So Paul here emphasizes the redemption that we enjoy by the blood of Christ. Again, listen to what he said. And you who once were far off are made near, brought near, by the blood of Christ. There is no way that I will ever be able to overemphasize the importance of Christ's blood. Without that blood, we would be lost. And yet Paul said in Ephesians 1 verse 7, it's in Christ that we have redemption through His blood. The price for sin was the blood of Jesus. And ultimately, because of Christ's death on Calvary, God could remain just, but also the justifier of those who come to Christ. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. So, listen now to what he says. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been made near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. Now, you remember Isaiah said, talking about Christ, that He is the Prince of Peace in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. The angels of God, when Jesus was born, they cried out, Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill toward man. Paul said that Jesus is the person of peace. So you've got the place of peace, that's Christ. The person of peace, again, that's Christ. He's made both one and broken down the middle wall of partition between us. If you went back and looked at the temple, you had the court of the Gentiles, and then you had the children of Israel. And there was a wall that divided the two. The Gentiles couldn't proceed beyond that wall. Well, Paul is saying that in Christ, that wall has been broken down. And in Christ, the Jews and the Gentiles are on equal footing. There's no distinction. Matter of fact, You've got the one body, the one church, that houses both Jews and Gentiles. That's what he says in verse 16. He's reconciled both Jew and Gentile in one body unto God through the cross. So you don't have the church of the Gentiles and the church of the Jews. No, it's just one church. Listen to what he says in verse 6 of chapter 3. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel. You remember in Galatians chapter 3 when Paul said that we're all baptized, that those of us who have been baptized into Christ 
had put on Christ. And he said it's in that context, there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. In other words, those distinctions have now been eradicated. The Jews and the Gentiles, they're on equal footing. And so, in verse 17, Paul said, He came and preached peace to you who are afar off and to those who were near. And wasn't it Peter on Pentecost Day when he set forth the terms of admission into the kingdom of God, said the promises to you, to your children, and to as many as are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. That would have encompassed the Jews, their descendants, and the Gentiles. Well, that's what the gospel has done for all. So we have redemption by the blood of Christ and reconciliation in the body of Christ. Listen again, verse 16. Paul said he reconciled both to God in one body through the cross. So you've got to be reconciled to God in the one body. It means you've got to be a member of the body of Christ to go to heaven, doesn't it? Now there's a third thing I want to share with you very quickly. Or another point I want to share with you in our third main point. It has to do with our relationship in the Lord. Note if you would verse 19. In verse 19 Paul said, you've got to think about the Gentiles and their background. Now, therefore, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and now note, and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being joined together, grows unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. Paul is saying to the Gentiles that you are now a part of the family of God. And Paul is saying to people, no matter what their background, when you obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, you become a part of God's family. You're a part of His household. Now Paul said regarding the church that it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You remember under the Mosaic Dispensation, the temple. And really when you talked about the temple, it represented the presence of God. As Christians, God dwells in the church. And so His presence is reflected in members of the body of Christ. It is a spiritual institution. It is a spiritual family. Now listen, please, very carefully. Because we are a spiritual family, a spiritual institution, we are to be spiritual people. This sometimes becomes problematic because we live in the world. And there are times when the world encroaches upon our spirituality. Wasn't it Paul who said that our citizenship is in heaven? And didn't Paul in writing to the church at Colossae say, set your affections on things above and not on things which are upon this earth? I want to ask you a question. 
When is the last time outside the assembly that you just sat down and thought about spiritual things? When is the last time when you left worship or Bible study and got in the car, rather than talking about the ball game or where you're going to eat or this or that, when is the last time you talked about what you studied about in Bible class? Or what you learned in worship? The fact of the matter is, in many, many cases, now we talk about sometimes, and many of us, we have been present when prayers have been uttered. And we talk about removing the world from our minds so that we can enter into worship with Almighty God. I'm not trying to judge anyone, and I know that we live in the world and that we have things that are important to us outside the spiritual life that we have in Christ. But if we come to Bible study and worship, and when we walk through the doors, if all we're talking about is the ball games and the SEC and this and that, what does that say about where our mind is? What does it say about where we are spiritually? Let me tell you what. I think some of us need to grow up. We need to grow up in Christ. Our minds are far too consumed with the material and the carnal. And we're more interested in who's in the SEC and not in the SEC rather than what the Bible has to say. Now that may sound pretty hard, but that's just the fact of the matter. We're much more at ease talking about football or talking about some other sport than we are God's Word. And what does that say? It tells me our interests are not spiritual in nature. And when we sit in worship service and we snicker and laugh and we pass notes and we text one another, let me tell you what, our mind is far from God. And that goes on right here in this assembly. And don't think for a minute that we don't see it. You don't need to be worried about me, but you, need, you do need to worry about God and what God thinks. We're on holy ground here. Not because this building is holy, but because we're in the presence of God. And I think we have forgotten whose presence we are standing before. I think we have forgotten in many cases what we're here for. We are to be spiritual people. We are a part of a spiritual body. We are to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's what the Hebrew writer said in chapter 12, verse 15. So what about you? Are you a spiritually minded person? Think about that for a minute. Either you are or you're not. What was it Jesus said? By their fruits you shall know them. How you live and what the focus of your life is says whether or not you're a spiritually minded person. It might be the case, matter of fact, 
It is the case. Some of us need to rethink why, why we're here. In far too many instances, we're coming in. When I was, uh, when I was in high school, I got a job at Coca-Cola. And we had a time clock. You'd come in, you'd punch in. When you left, you'd punch out. I think in many respects, we punch in and we punch out to worship and Bible study. We're not really here to worship God. We're not really here to study and to learn. It's just what we do. In other words, it's just a habit. You can forsake the assembly and be right here in this building. Did you know that? You can be right here on the premises and never worship God in spirit and in truth. And don't tell me that doesn't go on because I know it does. So we're spiritual people. So we're a family. And then Paul tells us something about our work in the Lord. I don't really have time to go into it. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul talks about our function within the body of Christ. And I want you to just, I want to close by sharing one verse with you. Turn over, if you will, to chapter 4. In verse 16, Paul talks about the body from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. Now listen to this. According to the effective working by which every part does its share. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul said, We've been created in Christ Jesus under good works. We have been saved to serve the Lord. Now, here's the key. Are you doing your part in the body? Listen again to what he said according to the effective working by which every, E-V-E-R-Y, every part does its share. Are you pulling your load here? Are you involved in the body of Christ? Or are you just checking in and checking out? You've got to decide. Look, this is, this is not play hour. This is real stuff. I know I've gone over tonight, and I didn't mean to. But I'm just saying that what we're talking about is life and death stuff. Heaven and hell. You want to go to heaven? you got to live like it. You want to be with God's family in heaven? Then you better start making preparation for it. So tonight, if you're not in Christ, if you haven't been redeemed by His blood, reconciled in His body, I encourage you to do that. Come to Jesus, believing Him to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins, be baptized into Christ, let Him put you in the church. If you're here tonight and you're not faithful, and your life's not what it ought to be, my encouragement to you is to come home before it is eternally too late. A lot of folks waited too late. They're in eternity. and They don't have a second chance. You have a second chance, third chance, fourth chance, whatever it may be. Won't you come as we stand and sing?